This is The Guardian. This week presents a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It's a celestial visitor that hasn't passed through these parts since Neanderthals walked the Earth. A rare green comet will make its closest approach to Earth for 50,000 years. The catchily named C2022E3ZTF should be most visible tomorrow, the 1st of February. And after its orbit close to Earth, it likely won't come back into orbit for several million years. But it coincides with new research, highlighting the devastating impact of light pollution on our night skies. The number of stars we can see with the naked eye has reduced dramatically because of light pollution or sky glow. So what's the best way to see the comet? And how is sky glow changing our relationship with the night sky? From The Guardian, I'm Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. Dr. Stuart Clark, you're an astronomy journalist and Star Watch columnist for The Guardian. First of all, tell me about this green comet. Where's it been? Where will it be going next? This is a comet that spends most of its time far, far out in the most distant reaches of the solar system in a place called the Oort Cloud, which is this huge reservoir of ancient comets. And because they're on such huge orbits, they spend most of their time out there, but periodically they come close to the sun. I have to ask, why is it green? It has this sort of quite subtle green glow about it. That glow is coming from molecules of carbon. When the carbon molecules are excited by the ultraviolet radiation that's coming from the sun, that processes that energy and gives it back out as green light. How close is this comet going to come to Earth? And is there anything astronomers can learn from comets when they do come this close to Earth? Yeah, so we're looking at an approach distance of about 27 million miles. And when these ancient comets fall in, in from the outer solar system, they've been pretty much untouched since the formation of the solar system 4.6 billion years ago. So they cycle around the sun on these large orbits. And every time they get close to the sun, a little bit of those ancient gases gets evaporated off into space. And as soon as you have these gas clouds surrounding these comets and they start to become quite bright, you can collect the light and you can split that light into a spectrum. And then in the spectrum are all these dark lines, or in the case of the carbon emission, sort of brighter ones. And that tells you the chemical composition of the comet, which is far from being just some kind of scientific curio, because it's actually telling you about the ingredients that went into making Earth, the rest of the planets, and of course, how we got the carbon to Earth, which became life and we now find in their DNA. So let's have a chat about how to spot this thing. I mean, what are your top tips for spotting the comet? It's very close, maybe just above the naked eye visibility limit. So you do stand a chance of seeing this with your naked eye but you would have to be in a completely dark site, well, well away from any urban light pollution. So the best thing that you can do is find the darkest site um, that you can and take a pair of binoculars. 
and then you're pretty much looking straight up. So to find the comet, what you want to do is to identify the constellation of the plough. The final two stars of the plough, so not the handle side, but the plough side, they point up towards the North Star and the comet will appear between the North Star and the constellation of the plough. You might be aware of the comet more in your peripheral vision than by directly looking at it. You might keep feeling that you're seeing a smudge in the sky, but when you look towards it, it disappears. And that's because your eyes are more sensitive in the peripheral edges than they are from the direct line of sight. So what might people actually see if they've got their binoculars or they've got their telescope ready? Can you describe it to us? Essentially, what you're going to see is just a fuzzy blob. So you're unlikely to see the comet's tails. You'll just see what gets called the coma, this big cloud of gases that surround that tiny icy nucleus. Now, the best chances of seeing this comet um, are to wait until the early hours of the morning. And that's because there's a waxing gibbous moon in the sky. Uh, we're heading towards full moon um, in the next few days. And the moon is so bright that it washes out faint objects. But the moon sets at 5 a.m. on February the 2nd, the morning of February the 2nd. And you've got an hour's window of dark sky. Are you going to make the effort to try and get up in the morning and, and see it? And how are you feeling about the uh, the chances of seeing it? Yeah, I'm quite lucky in that I have a reasonably dark field quite close to me. And it's always interesting to make the effort to go and see uh, these celestial events. You know, they are sort of once in a lifetime experiences. No two comets look the same. And often, even though I'm saying that they're just fuzzy blobs, there's a particular beauty about being under the night sky and observing these objects and just thinking about how old they are in comparison to you. You know, this comet is four and a half billion years old. It dates from before the formation of the Earth. And that's kind of a nice thing to think about, actually. So this is a really exciting event for stargazers, uh, but many of us won't be able to see this comet, particularly if we live in or near cities, because there's just so much other light around. What does the latest evidence tell us about the impact light pollution is having on our view of the night sky? There's been a very recent study from 2011 to 2022, and they asked a about 51,000 people to make observations of the night sky and compare it to an example chart and to tell them which chart most closely resembled their view of the night sky. And they found, goodness me, they found that the increase in the sky brightness was at 7 to 10% a year for this last decade. It does mean that more and more and more we are losing our view of the night sky. And do we know what the main culprits are when it comes to this kind of light pollution? There are a number of factors. One is the increasing availability of sort of low cost and low energy LED lighting. And 
what goes hand in hand with that is the fact that these LEDs often give out quite um, short wavelength light. And the shorter the wavelength of the light that's given out, so the more bluer or the more whiter the light is, that actually scatters much more effectively in the Earth's atmosphere. So as we transition from sodium lights and other traditional light forms into these cost-efficient uh, LEDs, we're actually markedly increasing the problem. Is there anything that can be done to preserve our view of the night sky or even get back some of what we've lost? Just because we can buy low-cost, high-efficiency lighting like LEDs doesn't mean we should we should have them on all night. We should only be lighting the things that we need to light to keep people safe. Um, we shouldn't be putting big floodlights up onto buildings and things like that where most of the light goes up into the sky. So a bit of sensitive design work. I should also say, however, that the CPRE, which is the countryside charity, they run an annual star count. And what CPRE have found is that in the last few years, people have been seeing more stars. So from 2020 onwards, um, it appears as if light pollution hasn't been quite so bad. Now, the question is, how do we square that with the results of the, the recent paper that we've been talking about? What this is pointing towards is the desperate need for a really full-on scientific study of light pollution. And if you want to take part in the CPRE star count 2023, well, it's happening between February the 17th and the 24th. So just go to their website. Everything we've been talking about does change our relationship with the night sky. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, how fundamental our view of the night sky is to our sense of who we are, of, of what we are. It's such an important question. I always say to people, if you want to find out who you really are, go and find a dark sky and spend an hour or so underneath the stars and just let the thoughts come to you. What do you feel? You know, what does it mean to you, the stars and the wider universe, you know, the infinity that you're looking into? As we increasingly live in urban environments, as the light pollution gets worse, that changes because we don't have that kind of relationship that almost every other human who's ever lived has had. Now, having said that, I have come to the conclusion that we're not losing our association with the night sky and the wider universe, but it's changing fundamentally because of the images that we get back from spacecraft, space telescopes, rovers on Mars, and you know these amazing astro photographs showing us the comet, for example. Each one of us has a much more detailed understanding and idea of what the wider cosmos looks like and yet the dichotomy is that that visceral emotional connection to the night sky seems to be on the downward trend. Stuart, huge thanks for coming on. This is utterly fascinating. Good to have you on. Utter pleasure. Thank you, Ian. Thanks again to Dr. Stuart Clark. You can read his Star Watch column at theguardian.com and his book, Beneath the Night, How the Stars Have Shaped the History of Humankind, is available now. 
And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Holly Fisher. The sound design was by Joel Cox. And the executive producer was Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Thursday. See you then.